Good evening, everybody. It's good to see you guys this evening. It's good to know we've got many more, I'm sure, watching online. I'm sure we'll have others join us as they drop their kids off and make their way in here. But uh, we'll start with a prayer and then we'll jump into our lesson tonight. So let's go ahead and pray together. Father God, we are incredibly thankful to gather again and to open up the scriptures. And Father, we pray that as we consider your nature, help us, Father, to be in awe of you. Help us, Father, to love you and trust you and obey you. Father, we pray that you help us to have our eyes open and our ears open to your truths. Help us, Father, to have our hearts open to who you are and how you would have us to live our lives. Father, thank you so very much for those that are gathered here tonight, for those that are watching online, for those that will be coming soon. Father, we pray that you continue to bless this congregation. Father, may we love each other more deeply. May we love you more deeply. May we love our community more deeply. And may we uh, always seek to be salt and light in the world. Father, thank you for Jesus and for the hope that we have in him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so as we've been doing the last few weeks, we're going to start with a few uh, discussion questions. The first discu discussion question is, what are some things that have power? That's what we're talking about tonight is power. So when you hear the word power, what comes to mind besides God? What comes to mind? What are some things that have power? Words. Say that again. Words. words. Words have power. That's good. That's excellent. I didn't even think about that one. That's good. Words have power. Yes. What else? Leaders have power, absolutely, yeah. The power of leadership, yeah. Authority and power. Prayer. Prayer has power, yeah, absolutely. Words and leaders and prayer. What else has power? My mind went in a totally different direction than your guys' mind seems to have gone. I was thinking more in a very literal sense. You guys are thinking more abstractly, but all of those things are, are really true. I was thinking one of the things that came to my mind was storms. We may have one before long, it looks like, but storms have power. What else, maybe? Anything else come to mind? What's that? Wind. Yeah, wind. Wind has power. Yeah, absolutely. Wind. Numbers, yeah, absolutely. Lots of people, and, and the more people you have, the more power you have. Yeah, absolutely. And the numbers of any kinds of things. When you have a lot of something, you have power. Yeah, that's good. Our thoughts. Our thoughts. Thoughts have power. Absolutely. Thoughts have power. Anything else you can think of? I thought about machines, like automobiles have power. Uh, Tractors, trucks, uh, power. We might even think about the engine itself uh, has power. The fuel that fuels an engine has power. What else? Anything else come to mind? What about weapons, bombs, and guns? Those have power. That's a negative power. We, we don't tend to think of that in a positive way, but uh, there's definitely power there. Anything else you can think of? Electricity. Electricity, absolutely, yeah, that's good. Yeah, electricity has power. Very literal there, yeah, power. Water. Water has power, yeah, absolutely. Maybe tools, right? Maybe even like a simple tool, like a lever could, could have power. You could exert power on something with a tool. 
So with all of those things in mind, Steve, I'm going to give you my, give you the, if you don't mind. I almost forgot about that. Thanks, bro. No, you're good. Thank you, brother. Um, Steve's taking attendance for us. Uh, so with those things in mind, all of those things, whether it's something abstract like ideas or even words or leadership or something more concrete like electricity or, or something like that, uh, the numbers of people. So all of those ideas, when you put all of those things together about power and things that have power, let's think about this. What feelings or what emotional response is evoked by power? What words describe the emotional response that's evoked by power? When you think about power, what's the emotional response to power? Submission. Oh, that's a good word. Yeah, submission. Awe. Awe. That's a great word, too. Yeah, awe. Submission. What else? Fear. Fear. Yeah, fear. Anger, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, that, that maybe that's like submission on one side, we might submit to power, and the other side might be anger, like rebellion, like I don't want that power exerted over me. Yeah. Sometimes it's envy. Sometimes envy? Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, envy. Didn't think about that one. That's good. Anything else? Any other words? Excitement. Excitement, yeah, absolutely. That's good. Excitement. Security, absolutely. If the power is watching over us, protecting us, yeah, it evokes a feeling, emotional response of security. Good. Anything else? What's that? Influence? Yeah. Yeah, influence. Definitely. One word that came to my mind was wonder. We said awe, we said fear. I don't know if we said respect, but that kind of goes along with with fear. Those are great words. So I want us to think about all of those things. Think about power, what makes something powerful, why do we think of something as powerful, what is power, and then also the emotional responses that we have to power. And then let's think about God, because all of those things that we talked about, all of those things that have power, all of those powers pale in comparison to the power of God, because God is omnipotent. And that's the word we're going to talk about tonight, that God is omnipotent. He has all power. He can do anything. And we've talked several times about how God is limitless, how God has no limits on him. So God's power is infinite, it has no limits, and it is unfathomable. It, it cannot even be comprehended. We can't wrap our mind around the power of God. So all of those things that we think of as being powerful, and some of those things are even used in Scripture to describe God's power because those things can be fathomed. We can fathom things like fire and the power of fire. And so in order to describe God, we might use something like fire to describe how powerful God is. But the power of fire or the power of wind or the power of electricity or the power of armies or the power of the sword or the power of whatever pales in comparison to the power of God because all of those powers, all of those powers that make us quake in fear, all of those powers pale in comparison to the power of God because all of those powers are limited, right? And God's power is unlimited. It is limitless. 
And God's power is unfathomable. We can't even comprehend the power of God. We can comprehend some of these other powers. And even, even the powers that are comprehensible make us shudder in fear sometimes, don't they? Those powers that are limited and are fathomable make us shudder in fear. And then God's power is unlimited and it is unfathomable. So let's think about that a little bit this evening. Look at Isaiah chapter 40. This is probably, this wasn't in our our chapter reading from the book uh, tonight, but any excuse I have to talk about Isaiah chapter 40, I'm going to use it because this is one of my favorite chapters in Scripture. It says, who has measured the waters, all of them, all of the waters, in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. So this is the poetic way of describing the infinite power and strength and breadth and width and height and depth of our God, saying that he could measure all of the waters in the hollow of his hand. Like, Picture your hand, or you could actually look at your hand and think about that hollow place in the palm of your hand, and God could put all of the waters in the world in the hollow of his hand, or he could mark off the heavens, all of the sky, with the span of his hand. Or he could enclose the dust of the earth in a measure and weigh the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. He says, verse 13, who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? What's the implied answer there? Who showed God all of these things? No one, right? Nobody. Nobody's bigger. Nobody has taught God anything. God knows all and no one could instruct him. Verse 15, behold the nations, the nations, all of them, all of the nations are not like a bucket of water, but are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Now, why would Isaiah say these things when talking about the power and the strength of God? Why even compare him to the nations? Because at that time, in that context, and even in our time and our context, there are very few things that can compare to the strength and power of nations, right? You think about the strongest, mightiest nations in the world, and you might think, what's stronger than that? We we even talk about nations of the world, the biggest nations of the world, as super what? Superpowers, right? We say the United States or Russia, these are superpowers. They have nuclear weapons. They have all of these things at their disposal. They are superpowers. And here's what Isaiah says about superpowers, the superpowers of the world, the the greatest nations of the world. He says they are like a drop from a bucket. 
I heard a preacher one time talk about when you empty out all of the contents of a bucket, there's usually at least one drop left. Now just imagine here you got this bucket and you've dumped out all the water and there's just one drop left and you, you kind of turn it over on its side and that one drop comes rolling out and it comes right to the rim and then it falls off. That one drop, that's like all the nations in the world compared to the power of our God. All of them. They're, they're nothing compared to the power of our God. And, and the people of Isaiah's day and the people of our day, we get so enamored on the one hand by the power of the nations we feel like are on our side, and we get so afraid and terrified, petrified of the nations we feel like are on the other side or our enemies or might hurt us. We get so enamored or so petrified of these nations because we think they're so strong. And Isaiah says, nonsense. They are like nothing. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness compared to the power of our God. He says in verse 18, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? An idol? And what are you supposed to do when you read that? Laugh, right? Laugh. An idol? A craftsman crafts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for, sil for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. You have to do special things to it just so that it won't fall over and it's immovable. It doesn't do anything. It's powerless. That's really what you're going to compare to God? The God who next to him all the nations of the world are less than nothing? He says in verse 21, Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. And again, one by one by one, we're talking about all of these things that seem so powerful. And Isaiah says, they're, they're nothing, nothing compared to our God. All of the inhabitants of the world are like grasshoppers to him. And the princes, he makes them as nothing. And the rulers of the earth as emptiness. He says in verse 24, scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. All of these princes and rulers that think they're so strong and so mighty and so powerful, they're just like one of those uh, dandelions, right? Just like a dandelion with the little seeds on the top and you just blow on them and they're nothing. Nothing. Not powerful, not strong, not mighty, not terrifying shouldn't evoke feelings of fear and reverence and awe compared to God because next to him they are less than nothing. Verse 26, lift up your eyes on high and see who created this, created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. 
Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? He says, every star in the sky, he brings them out. He knows them by name. So why would any of you think that anything is beyond his notice that God doesn't see and doesn't know? Verse 28, have you not known? Have you not heard the Lord? is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And then sort of look at the application in verse 29. He says, he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Right? Because on the one hand, God is a terrifying power if you are against him. If you rebel against him and you're opposed to him, God is a terrifying power. But if God, or rather if you, are on God's side, then his strength and his power do what? They strengthen you. They give power to you. He is your rock. He is your shield. He is your defender. He is your helper. He is your father. His power and strength belong to his people. He strengthens and empowers them. So all of these emotional responses that we talked about that are evoked by power, these feelings of, somebody said security earlier. Security, yes. And fear, Yes, but for those of us that belong to him and are saved by him, those of us that are his children, not fear in the sense of afraid of punishment, but fear in the sense of awe and wonder and respect and just fall on our knees before his greatness and to think that us who are less than a grasshopper in his sight, would be cherished by him, loved by him, that he would give everything to make us his own. This is the almighty God we serve, the all-powerful God we serve, who can do anything. So when we say that God can do anything, here's one thing we might need to make clear. God can do anything except that which is absurd or in violation of his character. Now, I I hate that we even have to get into the absurd thing, but over the centuries, people have invented all kinds of absurd questions whenever this idea of God being all-powerful comes up. And so somebody says God can do anything, and somebody wants to be skeptical or, or kind of ask sort of a smart aleck question like, is God strong enough to make a rock so big that even he can't lift it? You see the, the paradox there, because if it's, if, it's, if it's a rock that he can't create, and you say, no, God can't create a rock that that's, that that's that big, then you're saying God can't create a certain size of rock, and if he can create a rock that's so big that he can't move it, then there's something that God can't move. But, of course, the question itself is absurd. That's absurd, that there's no such thing. It's just like asking, could God make a round square? Well, 
no, God can't make a round square because a round square is absurd, right? Because if it's or a, a squared circle or whatever, because if, if a circle is squared, then it's no longer a circle. So it's an absurd question, but people have asked these sort of things. So God, of course, doesn't do things that are self-contradictory or illogical or absurd, but God also can't do that which violates his own character. Like Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 18, it's impossible for God to lie, right? It's impossible for God to lie. Titus chapter 1 and verse 2, God who never lies. Or Numbers chapter 23 and verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. So God can do anything except that which is absurd or in violation of his character. Secondly, God can and will do anything he promises to do. And this is where I want to spend just a a minute thinking about. Because almost every passage that talks about God's omnipotence, of course, that's our word, that's not necessarily a Bible word, but that idea that God can and will do anything, that nothing is impossible for God, that God is all-powerful, they're almost always in the context of God keeping his promises, God doing what he says he will do. And why is that so important? Because no matter how unlikely something seems, No matter how hopeless a situation seems, if God says, I will do it, then he can and he will do it. In fact, that's what faith is all about. I've been thinking a lot about Hebrews. If you've been following along with our morning devotionals, we've been going through the book of Hebrews. And and so those stories that the Hebrew writer relays to his audience about faith, that's what they're all about. In fact, that's what the the people of the first century, the first century Jewish Christians, they needed to hear that because their situation seemed hopeless. It seemed absurd that God would come through for them. And so the Hebrew writer reminds them over and over and over and over again about how many seemingly hopeless situations there have been where the people of God trusted that God would keep his promises, that nothing was impossible for God. You think about Abraham and Sarah. Here you have a a couple of hundred-year-olds who have a baby. Or you think about all of the stories throughout Scripture of the times where God did what seemed impossible. Or after Abraham had a son and God told him to sacrifice Isaac, And he knew that this was the promised son and that through Isaac, God was going to keep his promises. But yet he said to sacrifice him. And Abraham said, okay, I'm willing to do that. Why? What did he think God was going to do? What does Hebrew writer tell us? Raise him from the dead. He'd never seen a resurrection, but he knew that if this son dies, God will bring him back from the dead because God can and will keep his promises. And even death itself, as powerful as death is, as permanent as death seems, nothing can keep God's promises from coming true. So it's one thing for us to just abstractly say, yes, whoever the creator is, he can do anything that he is all powerful. But in order for us to bring it home and for us to think about the implications for our life, We have to think about it in these terms, that God can and will keep his promises. So whatever God has promised to do, and for us, the the primary thing for us 
is our own resurrection, right? That's why 1 Corinthians 15, we do everything that we do. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then we're silly. We're just ridiculous for following Jesus, Paul would say. Paul would say, if it wasn't for the resurrection of the dead, then we of all people ought to most be pitied in the world. But because we know that God can and will keep his promises and that death will not stop God's promises from coming true, we believe that we will be raised from the dead just as Jesus was raised from the dead. And so we believe that no matter, no matter how strong an opposing force may be, even death itself, it will not and cannot keep God's promises from coming true. So we read throughout scripture, but here's one of my favorites, Psalm 20, verses 7 and 8. The psalmist says, I don't know if that was on there, Psalm 20, verses 7 and 8. Some tr- maybe it's not on there. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Horses seem powerful. Chariots seem powerful. Again, if you were, if you were an army of infantry and you went up against horses and chariots, it would seem like they are too powerful. We cannot win. But The psalmist says, we don't trust in horses. We don't trust in chariots. We don't trust in those powers. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. And that has application to everything. Some trust in whatever. Fill in the blank. Some trust in nations. Some trust in military. Some trust in innovation. Some trust in whatever. Fill in the blank. Some trust in this or that, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God because they collapse and fall. Whatever it is that people put their stock in, whatever it is that people trust in, whatever it is, no matter how powerful it is, no matter how powerful it seems, no matter how powerful a nation, no matter how powerful a military, no matter how powerful innovation, no matter how powerful the science, no matter how powerful, whatever, whatever, And this 2020 taught us that everything is fragile, isn't it? Even civilization across the world is fragile. Supply chains are fragile. It just took a couple days and the toilet paper all ran out, right? It doesn't take very long before things begin to collapse and fall. But the Lord doesn't collapse and fall. The Lord will keep his promises. So his people can keep their heads held high. His people can walk through life trusting in him. But over and over and over again, the warning was, stop putting your trust in these other things. Stop putting your trust in these other things. Because that's the temptation, isn't it? The temptation is to walk by sight and not by faith. But our calling is to walk by faith and not by sight. Because it's tempting to put your trust in the things that you can see, but rather put your trust in the one who is all-powerful. Everything else is not all-powerful. It may be powerful to some degree, but in comparison to God, it is less than nothing. Less than nothing. And that's easy to say when we're sitting in a Bible class. 
I, I always have this mental image of, of the Lord of the Rings movies, you know, the Lord of the Rings movies. And, and in those movies, there, there's several times where there's these huge armies, and usually they're like these monsters, orcs, and things, and they're, they're all coming towards the, the walls, and they're attacking. But I think about how many times in history that wasn't just a movie, that was reality. Soldiers, as far as you could see, besieging a city, camped out around a city, maybe even launching projectiles at the city or attacking the city walls. And the temptation would be, we need someone to come and save us. We need someone to fix this. And a lot of times, God's people would give their allegiance to Egypt or to Assyria or to Babylon, and they would put their trust in these other nations. And the the admonition over and over and over again is they are not all-powerful. Babylon is not all-powerful. Assyria is not all-powerful. Egypt is not all-powerful, either when they're attacking you or defending you. Whether they're attacking you or defending you, they are not all-powerful, but Yahweh is. The Lord our God is all-powerful. Trust in him, no matter how hopeless it seems. No matter how silly it seems, it seems ridiculous to do the things that Jesus calls us to do, doesn't it? It seems ridiculous to turn the other cheek. That seems absurd. Turn the other cheek. When somebody forces you to go a mile, go two with him. When somebody sues you for one piece of clothing, give them both. Those kind of things seem absurd unless we trust that God really is all-powerful and that we cannot lose unless we give our allegiance and our trust, and our faith to someone or something else. So God can do anything, and God will do anything he promises to do. Number three, God can do anything he chooses to do, but often chooses not to do all that he can. God can do anything he chooses to do, but he often chooses not to do all that he can. In other words, God restrains his power. In fact, he has to restrain his power. God is of infinite power, but he often manifests himself in finite ways, right? Every time God manifests himself, he manifests himself in finite ways. Otherwise, he would be incomprehensible. God's presence couldn't have showed up in the temple if he showed up in an infinite way, and so he had to show up in a finite way. So every time God manifests himself, he manifests himself in a finite way, meaning that God restrains his power. When he speaks to Elijah, remember on the mountain? He speaks to Elijah in a low whisper, 1 Kings 19, 12, in a still, quiet voice. The God of infinite power often chooses not to do all that he can. He restrains himself. He is all-powerful. He could wipe out evil and, and pain and suffering like that, but why doesn't he? Why doesn't he? And that's a question that always gets asked, right? If God is all-powerful and God is all-loving, if God could stomp out all evil and pain and suffering, why doesn't he? Well, the, the answer is pretty simple on the one hand, but very challenging on the other. The reason God doesn't just stomp out all evil and pain and suffering in, in one fell swoop is because so many of us are tied up in it. So many of us are still guilty of it. And he wants as many as possible to be forgiven of it and released from it before he destroys all of it. 
And so he restrains himself. He can do all things, but he refrains from doing all things because he wants as many as possible to be saved. God is long-suffering. He is patient. He is merciful. And so he manifests himself in finite ways, the greatest of which, of course, is the gospel. Philippians chapter 2. That's where we'll look next. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. As we've been saying throughout this series, that Christian theology begins and ends with Jesus. So the God who can do anything often chooses not to do all that he can. Look at verse 5 of Philippians 2. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though Jesus was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And this is, on the one hand, incredibly surprising that God would become human. But then again, if we're paying attention to the story of Scripture, the infinite God, the God who can do anything he chooses to do, but often chooses not to do all that he can do, restraining himself, emptying himself, and becoming a human. I don't know that we can even really wrap our mind around that. The second person of the Godhead, Jesus, the Son, who from the beginning was with God and was God, who was equal with God, who had all of this power, all of this infinite power. Hebrews chapter 1, John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, all things were created by him and through him, and nothing that is was created without him. Everything was created by him and for him. This Jesus, this second person of the Godhead, emptied himself and became an infant. I mean, what is more helpless than an infant? What is more powerless than an infant? The one who was all-powerful became powerless for our sake. The one who could do anything he wanted to do but often does less than he can do emptied himself and became helpless, powerless. Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, Paul's whole point in that text is that we should imitate Jesus, that we should have this mind among ourselves that is ours in Christ Jesus, that he did less than he could do. He emptied himself. He became a servant. He restrained himself. He gave up power. He gave up authority. He gave up what he could do in order to save others. Out of love, he emptied himself. And so Paul says, you do the same thing. What does that look like? Well, it looks like everything he says in that context. It looks like considering others to be more significant than yourselves. 
It looks like being merciful, being long-suffering, being meek, being patient with each other. Just because you can say something, just because you can do something, doesn't mean you should say something or you should do something. You should restrain yourself. You should be merciful. You should be kind. You should be patient. You should be long-suffering. Why? Because that's what God does. That's what the gospel is all about. And if the God of heaven, the one that Isaiah says could hold all the waters in the hollow of his hand or measure the entire sky with his hand, the the one who compared to whom all the nations in the world are like a drop from a bucket, like dust on the scales, he became a baby and grew up in an average, ordinary home. And he got on his knees and washed the dirty, nasty feet of his disciples who would use those feet that same night to run away from him and abandon him. And then he would die like a criminal on a cross because he loved us. Paul says, take that mentality, take that mindset that mindset of restraint, that mindset of meekness, that mindset of humility, that mindset of service, that mindset of not doing all you can do, but giving up and sacrificing and restraining. Take that mindset and apply that to your life with one another. Consider others to be more significant than yourself. Serve them rather than seeking to be served. That's what Jesus does. He shows up, the son of man shows up, the son of God shows up, the creator shows up as a human being and he doesn't come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is the paradox, that is the beautiful, wonderful paradox of the gospel that the all-powerful God showed up not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we could just look at that and say, well, that's great and wonderful and I I can be saved. But Paul says, go beyond that. Imitate that. Walk in the same way. This is the kind of godly behavior that we are to imitate. So God's omnipotence should evoke an emotional and a behavioral response. God's omnipotence should evoke an emotional and a behavioral response. It's not enough for it to evoke an emotional response. I mean, that's good. And I think every every good theology starts there. I think every good worship starts there. If we're not in awe of God, if we're not blown away by God, if we don't get chills by thinking about God, if we can't look at the heavens and think, wow, what an infinite, powerful God this is and what a grasshopper I am in his sight. And we don't have an emotional response to who God is. I think there's probably a problem. But it can't stop with just evoking an emotional response. It also has to evoke a behavioral response. We we not only have to be in awe of him, in wonder of him, in excitement for him, in devoted love towards him, but also in obedience. One of the first words that got used tonight was submission. That's... That's how we show that we really see God for who he is. Would we really be seeing God rightly if we said, you know, I know, I know, this is what I'm supposed to do. I know, I know I'm supposed to do this. and I know God wants me to do this, but, you know, I mean, I'm just a person. I'm just a human. I'm just going to kind of do my own thing and go my own way. Whoa, 
whoa, do you realize who we're talking about here? Who he is. Yes, we're going to make mistakes. And yes, we're going to, to fall short of his glory. And when we do, we ought to fall on our knees in humble repentance. So, so on the one hand, just this awe and this wonder, but also on the other hand, obedience. So far as it depends on us, so far as we're able to be obedient and live obediently, because that's, that's what we do, both out of reverent fear for him, but also out of gratitude in knowing what he's done for us in knowing the cost that he's paid for us and knowing how he's redeemed us, how else would we live but in gratitude? So fear and awe and reverence and obedience and trust and trust. Again, we have to recognize that he who is with us is so much greater than he who is against us, whoever it is that's against us. I I say often, and I'm going to say this till, till I'm dead, but It is against our religion to fear religious persecution. How many times over and over and over and over and over again, Jesus and Paul and throughout the Old Testament, God's people are told, do not fear them. Jesus says, don't fear those who can kill the body. Don't be afraid of them. It is against our religion to fear religious persecution. It is against our religion. Why? Because we trust in Jesus. Do we get afraid sometimes? Sure, absolutely. And we need to have our hearts strengthened to remember to trust in the Lord because he who is against or he who is for us is greater than he who's against us. Trust, loving devotion, and then above all things, maybe. An imitation of the way God restrains his power. Because you have power too, don't you? In fact, one of the first powers that was listed tonight was words. You have power in your words. We're the only ones of the earthly creation that have words. I know parrots can imitate us, but they can't speak words. You can speak words. You can take thoughts and form them into words and sentences and ideas. And you can build up or you can tear down with your words. You have a power that God has given you in your hands and in your mouth and in your feet. Your whole life, there's power to it. It's a finite power, but you have a power. And if we are imitating the restraint of God, the long-suffering of God, the mercy of God, the patience of God, that the all-powerful one, doesn't do everything he can do. Out of love for us, he restrains himself. We ought to do the same. So with that in mind, let's pray. Father, we are in awe of you. Father, we do not even deserve to speak your name or to be called your children. But Father, by your mercy and your grace, by your love for us, You have poured out your love for us in the giving of your only begotten son that we might not only have eternal life but might be called your children and be reconciled to you and be able to address you as our father, might be able to approach your throne of grace with confidence. And Father, we are simply blown away by that. We are overwhelmed that you would even be mindful of us, much less love us and listen to our prayers. And Father, we just... Thank you. And we pray, Father, that you help us to live our lives in that awe and that gratitude. Help us, Father, to live in obedience to you. 
Help us, Father, to seek your forgiveness when we fail you. Help us, Father, to lean on you and trust in you. Help us not to be afraid of those who are against us because we know that your strength and your power belong to us because we are your children. And Father, we pray that you help us to walk in that confidence and trust and faith. Help us, Father, to imitate your mercy and your grace, your patience and your long-suffering. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for saving us from our own ways and showing us a better way. Father, we thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.